Coming up on this week's show, a lot of action in the cricket world. Ireland Super League success, Germany making moves in the women's game, penalty run controversy in Malta, plus news from ICC land and Major League Cricket. But first, a shout out to our Emerging Cricket patrons who help us do what we do. If you're passionate about cricket in the associate world and beyond, you can help us grow from as little as $2 a month by becoming an Emerging Cricket patron. To sign up, log on to Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Emerging Cricket. Enjoy yet another EC pod. Welcome in again to another Emerging Cricket Podcast, online and on Sport FM in Perth. I'm Daniel Beswick. Unfortunately, one man down tonight. Tim sends his apologies with his nose to the grindstone in Vanuatu. But I am delighted to be joined by Nick Skinner tonight. We've got a whole lot of cricket to talk about, which is good, Nick. Uh, how are you? And you can't say all right because you say all right every week. <laughs> I'm well. I'm I'm happy. I've I've uh, I've been productive today. I've mowed the lawn, which uh, was getting very out of hand. Been doing a bit of cooking, bit of you know just the usual sort of lockdown activities. But uh, yeah, How, how's how's things up a bit down south for you? There's something therapeutic about mowing the lawn, which yeah. I do enjoy doing. I'm now in an apartment though, so I don't get the uh, the luxury of doing that. But no, things are going okay. To celebrate the upcoming Olympics, we've decided in the house to to make national foods every night. Oh, fun! What we've done is to kind of kill two birds with one stone. We did Italy on the first night with. Italy winning the Euros as well. We're doing Greek night tonight. We've got some some lamb. We're going to do some gyros. Oh, nice! Uh, but yeah. we've had Hungary. We had we had goulash. Yep, very good. But what we've done is we've basically found all the countries that won a gold medal at the last Olympics. We'll try and get through them at some point over this next little period. Whether it's just snacks or or meals and stuff like that. A couple of big ones that we can sort of mark off really early. Stuff like the USA. You know, some pretty basic stuff there because we we know that their cuisine probably isn't the most most, uh, shall we say, sophisticated of, of the list. I send out my apologies to, to Nate Hayes and, and, and Peter Delapena and all our USA cricket fans, but I think they'd probably be the first people to admit that. But yeah, it's been it's been fine. And our housemate, Caleb, just celebrated his 21st birthday in lockdown. So oh, we had to try and make the most of that. We had, yeah, we had a nice, nice roast dinner the other night for that as well. So yeah, we're trying to make the most of the, the situation. And I, I suppose that the saving grace in all of this is that there is a bunch of sport that will be on television and on streams for the next week or so. The first one we'll talk about in a minute with the Super League with one match still to go as we record this and we'll talk about that in a moment. But yeah, we've had Germany, France, Women's T20 Internationals. We had Belgium, Malta. We've had European Cricket Series in Romania where Pavel Florin's back. We've got the Olympics coming up. There's been a whole lot of full member cricket with Super League permutations and combinations thrown into all of that in terms of emerging cricket and yeah, there's there's a whole lot going on and a whole lot to talk about, thankfully. So keeping myself occupied, as I'm sure you are as well. So let's get into the Super League right now, Nick. And the caveat that I will sort of throw out there before we do begin talking about a lot of it is that we're recording before the third one-day international between South Africa and Ireland. So a lot of our numbers and a lot of our chat is kind of based on, well, the match and a half that we have seen so far. Of course, the first match was washed out even with William Porterfield returning and making runs and Andy Balburnie once again making bulk runs in in both of those games but to talk about that series I suppose as an intro into the the rest of the, the Super League permutations that we will be working with at some point this is a really really big series in the context of them not only for Ireland making their case but South Africa like a number of full members who have fluffed their lines I think it's probably fair to say early in this competition I, I look at a couple of games where 
full members have, have dropped big points. Pakistan unable to beat it. Well, let's be realistic, an England C team at the moment with everything going on there. But the associate member in the Netherlands and the and the Irish teams and even Afghanistan is three from three. They're making their case a little bit earlier than some of these four members who might be timing their run. Perhaps even unaware that the Super League is even a thing, Nick. But to look at this Irish team, we'll get to some more in-depth stuff with them in a moment. But this is a great result, even with these first two matches, uh, and even irrespective of, of the third match, depending on how that goes as well. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, we, we can look a bit further down the track at, at all the permutations. But you know, lo- looking at this game, South Africa looked really off the boil. And you know, if we're being kind, you could say that they're possibly a bit distracted with the you know the unrest at home, and and especially a number of the team being from KwaZulu-Natal and even Gauteng, where, where most of the violence is kind of uh, centred. Um, but they could certainly have played better, and their, their depth looks quite bad. You know, resting Quinton de Kock and, and a couple of the bowlers, they, they looked very threadbare. And, you know, credit to Ireland. Look at the way they played. This Ireland batting lineup. It's it's still a work in progress, but uh, Bow Burney scored a century, and they all built around him, and that was really encouraging. You know, everybody contributed. They didn't sort of get two for 200 and then collapse, as we've seen a couple of times. And, you know, Sterling didn't score any runs in either of the game, really, and they still managed to put up good scores. So, yeah, still pretty reliant on Sterling and Bow Burney, but if we start seeing a couple of the younger guys making big scores rather than just chipping in with a sort of 50 or 40 here and there, I think they're looking in good shape with the bat. And again, on the other side of things, they played really well with the ball. You know, they've got little, they've got a dare. They've got a good pace attack coming through and, and guys who can hit the mid-130s, 140, which is what you realistically need to be doing to threaten top-level batting attacks. So I think they're looking in good shape. They're still, as I said, they're still kind of in flux. But as the the young guys start to become, you know, more experienced and, and just get more cricket kind of under their belt, I think Ireland are looking all right. Yeah, that last point that you've made is quite telling. This is the time for the young Irish crop to really start to make this team their own. We've harped on about the golden age period for a long time in Irish cricket. And I think that's quite warranted given the success that they've had over the years at World Cups, eventually reaching full member status, playing a test match at home at Malahide against Pakistan as well. And I think Irish cricket really does need to to acknowledge the fine work that that crop of talent did in the era that they played in. But to look at it now, it's very much a case of this new Irish crop coming through and making this team their own. Balburnie leading the front, but you look at the rest of the team and you look at the guys who are probably going to make their way potentially back in or, or establishing themselves into the team. And there is quite a lot of talent there. Curtis Camper coming back from injury and someone like Gareth Delaney not even playing in this series. We know how destructive he can be with the bat and with his leg spin as well. So all of a sudden, this is such a stark contrast from their series in the Netherlands where the Netherlands really did make the most of their home conditions. But to bring it to probably the next point, making Malahide a fortress or making Stormont a fortress when they do play there in their next Super League series, the Irish do look pretty comfortable playing at home and they play a kind of old school game plan of one day international cricket. They start slow. At Malahide, you just need to almost sit through the first 10 overs. Be none for 40 if you have to. Be none for 45 if you have to. And then as you build in, that's when you can accelerate and lift to a score very much against the new kind of modus operandi in one day international cricket where everyone wants to go really, really hard in the power play. England have kind of molded their entire one day international game around just going hard, going hard and not even worrying about the last 10 overs because you can put an extra man out in that last 10 overs. So for Ireland, they play an old fashioned style of one day cricket, but it certainly works for them. And yeah, again, looking at that team, Andy McBride batting at three, which was a huge surprise. I don't think anyone really had that, but I think even someone like George 
Stockwell, who he's been working on his batting a lot. He's batting in the middle order now and, and starting to look really comfortable in that spot. But they also utilized him as, you know, his old self as the left arm orthodox spinner with great effect. And and Simi Singh, to be honest, I, I think he's someone that is a very, very underappreciated player, I think. I think he brings a whole lot of experience into that team now with his off spin, late order hitting. And then, yeah, the guys that you mentioned at the start there, Josh Little, Mark Adair, two quick bowling all-rounders, but also guys who can chip in with the bat and, and, and strike and long and hard. So again, it, it's such a stark contrast to this Netherlands series, but you look at, at where they are at the moment and the run home, we'll probably talk about that in a second. All of a sudden, I, I think there's a lot of depth there and I think you know there's there's plenty of things to be excited about and other teams other full members dropping points everywhere yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned the England approach, which, let's point out, was implemented by an Irishman in uh, Owen Morgan. But uh, That's a very good point. <laughs> we can leave that to one side. But um, the, the English approach relies on having guys who can hit all the way down. And, you know, Ireland are sort of, they're almost starting to build towards that. You know, they do hit a fair way down, even into the tail. And I think the, the missing link really is the ability of Sterling or Balburnie to provide a sort of a stable platform at the other end. And the younger guys in the Irish team, they seem to need that stability up the other end so that they have a bit more freedom to play so yeah the next step for them will be developing that gear where you know like you look at the way Paul Sterling's career has progressed he was the young hitter for a large part of his career and then he sort of took on the the mantle of the senior player and now he's able to be a bit more stable at the top and and give the younger guys the freedom so as the team develops we'll be looking to see someone like a you know a camper or Delaney or whoever to be batting a bit more stably and you know allowing the next lot of younger players who are coming through at the interpro level, you know, allowing them to come and, and start chipping in as well. So it's funny how things can change. You know, <laughs> after that series in the Netherlands, where yes, admittedly the pitches were tricky, but now they look pretty good. And as you said, full member teams dropping points left, right, and centre. South Africa are going to have to look out. And I wonder if this loss against Ireland means that they will be fielding full-strength teams against the Netherlands, for example. And you know, it makes it makes it a bit harder for the Netherlands to kind of sneak up on them. A lot of backstories that will come up in that South Africa-Netherlands series, not to mention a couple of guys playing domestic cricket in the Netherlands who would actually qualify for both international teams and haven't represented them yet at international level. So I think there are a lot of you know political backstories in all of that as well. But I know we, we are a, an emerging member podcast, but to talk about South Africa just briefly that team if, if you're an emerging team that want to play South Africa like Sri Lanka and unfortunately I think the Netherlands and Ireland both don't play Sri Lanka in this cycle of, of the Super League but you look at that South African team and, and it's beatable in all fairness I mean the new captain in Bavuma there's been a little bit of pressure on him as the new captain he doesn't seem to be making runs as captain Quinn de Kock hasn't played in this series and it's starting to look like you know if de Kock doesn't play or he doesn't make runs South Africa are very vulnerable Markram's a very classy looking bat but he struggled to make runs himself the only guy who looks kind of destructive in that middle order is Rassi van der Dusen. And then looking at the bowling, yeah, you can see off Tabre Shamsi with his 10 overs, he's the T20 international number one bowler. Uh, Rabada obviously is 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 brilliant at what he does, but I look at the rest of the attack and Anrik Njork is fantastic, but if him or Rabada have a bad day, you go at one of them, you take on Petrokwayo, who's the other quick, and whoever else comes in, Maharaj, you could probably knock around for five and over in the middle overs. So South Africa are very beatable. And I think, you know, the Netherlands will probably look to that series as one that they can definitely take points from. Looking at Ireland's top order, 
Will Porterfield back in the runs? And I can safely put my hand up and say that, look, I probably thought that Porterfield's best was was probably past him. But now with him giving the captaincy to Balberni, it frees him up a little bit as well. And he looked comfortable at, at Malahide in a role that really did suit him. And Paul Sterling, a number of people have made a very similar point. I know we've written about it. I know Matt Roller at Quick Info's written about this as well. Paul Sterling seems to do his best work when he just gives himself a little bit of extra time at the very top of the order. We know he can hit the ball long. We know he can take on the spin. He's got a game that very much works in his favor. There's not a whole lot of footwork there, but his eyes and his hands work so well together. He stays leg side of the ball, can hit over cover, can hit over point, but then can go leg side. He's quick on the pull shot. The ball doesn't need to be short for him to pull the ball away. So he's actually a really good matchup for a lot of really quick bowlers. And when he gives himself an extra six balls at the start of his innings, that's when he can really move into it. And I think he hasn't really made big runs in this series. Balburnie's been fantastic as a as an alternative to that for Ireland. But you've got to say that, you know, if Ireland are putting up these runs without big sterling contributions, once he gets going again like we know he can, they're in a, a not a bad spot. And looking at their run home and doing some quick maths. So again, the caveat being that we haven't seen the third international yet so maybe Paul Sterling's made a bucket load of runs and we haven't talked about it but (laughs) they've got one more game against South Africa as we record this they've got Zimbabwe at home in Stormont they've got the West Indies away which they have a decent record of in white ball cricket away from home in the Caribbean Uh, they have Bangladesh at home eventually and they have New Zealand at home eventually those need to be rearranged because they were postponed COVID series they don't play Australia they don't play India they don't play Sri Lanka and they don't play Pakistan so my rough maths and this would probably include the match that we are you know watching tonight a lot of people have kind of earmarked that 120 points mark as a top eight finish but I would probably go a little bit further and say 120 is safe between 100 to 110 points I think you would be you'd have a reasonable chance of making that top eight considering how skewed the top three is with the rest of the field India currently ninth but you would suspect that they'd finish in the in the top eight anyway so I think that point's moot but Looking at it, they've got 35 points now before the last game. So even if they do get a washout in this next game, that's, what, 40 points. So you realistically need eight more wins from four more series. They've got two series at home, two series away. I guess that they wouldn't really want to rely on getting too many points off New Zealand. But in saying that New Zealand might be already secure and qualified, you never know what that series has in store for us. But Zimbabwe and Bangladesh at home, you'd like to think that they could win two out of three games in both those series. And then, who knows, after that, I think they dare to dream at this point, Nick. Yeah, they'll be kicking themselves about losing 3-0 to Afghanistan because um, you know, those were definitely winnable games. All three of them, they, they were in positions where they could have kicked on and probably won, but they just let it slip away. So, that's again, that's what's so impressive about this win is that they kept going and they didn't let it slip. Yeah, Zimbabwe, that series is going to be decisive, especially because... You know, when we get to this kind of bottom of the table, every win that you get against another sort of bottom five team is points that they don't get, and that puts them sort of further behind you. All of the, you know, even the Windies, they're pretty hit and miss, especially in the longer white ball format. Yeah, that that's that's realistic. Bangladesh, I don't know. I think you're being a bit generous to Ireland. Bangladesh have played them in Ireland a number of times, and and they've won most of their games. They're a serious one-day team these days, I think. Shakib's back as well, to be fair. Yeah, Shakib's back. They've they've had a couple of um, player shuffles of of late, though, so I I don't know. You you never know. Yeah, as you said, New Zealand, you, you would expect them to win. 
I'm just thinking, you know, as a bit of a tangent, but the ICC, when they ran the World Cricket League Championship, they had the last round played simultaneously. So, you, you didn't have so many funny games with this team's already through and this team knows what they're doing. And, and mm. so, they avoided some of that stuff. But, you know, realistically, it's not very feasible with 13 teams and, you know, people all around the world and different time zones and stuff. So, that's something probably to look at for the next Super League or the one after that, maybe even. But yeah, you know, you look at who's challenging Ireland for that eighth spot maybe or especially trying to keep off the bottom place which is the relegation zone if, if you go to the World Cup qualifiers who have we got we've got Zimbabwe we've got Sri Lanka are looking to be in danger we've got the Netherlands potentially the West Indies Pakistan and South Africa might not even you know they'll be looking a bit wobbly at the bottom end of things as well maybe so there's a lot of stuff in flux and thinking about the Super League this is the benefit of it you know in, instead of it just being oh that's nice Ireland beat South Africa in a random series that means nothing mm. now it's oh oh, wow, Ireland beat South Africa and that throws open a lot of different permutations for qualifying for the World Cup and that's the whole point of this tournament. And to go on a bit of a rant here, why on earth is the ECB not making more of a fuss about it? You know, or, or why are the broadcasters not talking about it? You know, we, <laughs> I was going to bring this up. We saw on the Sky coverage of uh, England's series against Pakistan, they, they didn't mention the Super League even though they brought up the fact that Ireland beat South Africa. They didn't, they didn't mention the fact that Ireland beating South Africa means they now have 10 extra points in the qualification race for the World Cup and they don't they didn't say that Pakistan losing against an England C team was you know a, a golden opportunity to snag some points against a top team in the qualification they they why why is no one talking about it it's gone past the point of just negligence in those England games where they just don't talk about the repercussions and the consequences of Super League fixtures to the point where I think the conspiracy theorists in us probably do throw up ideas as to why it's not being mentioned. You know, maybe, and this is opinion I've seen around, maybe the ECB didn't like the proposed Super League structure and and didn't want to give it any more airtime. But I think, you know, once you have it and once it's being played out, uh, you need to, I think, you know, serve some sort of function and inform the viewers at home what's going on. I looked at a couple of posts in regards to Super League tables that were thrown around um, and the points that have been relevant to the Super League. And unsurprisingly, the first comments on them a lot of the time was, what's this Super League? I've never heard of this Cricket World Cup Super League. What the hell's a Super League? And, you know, it's very hard to bite your tongue here and not make a comment about, you know, a lot of the, the chat. But one of the reasons why we are here talking and, and providing a podcast at this level is to is to inform people that this is what happens. You know, there's 24 one-day internationals and you've got to try and win as many as you can to, to, to qualify for the next World Cup and that's the new system and it's an infinitely better system than what we had before. A couple of other probably things just to finish up and, and you mentioned it there talking about concurrent series at the end of it. I think our emerging cricket fans who have watched a lot of World Cricket League or seen scorecards of a lot of World Cricket League action in their time, they would know how significant something like net run rate is in in the context of all of this. So it will be really interesting down the, the, the business end of the Super League, as you point out, how they go about not only setting out those series, but how those series are played out and what teams want to do to try and qualify. And the other thing in all of that is that it's going to be actually quite hard to, to make sure all these fixtures get run in time with the, with the World Cup in mind. So look, I think we could be seeing the start of something special here. And this is exactly what the Super League needed. A, a really fiercely competitive 13-team competition where you look at it now, none of the established full members outside of the big three have really stood up and said, you know, we're qualifying. You know, this is ours now. New Zealand's the exception to that. They're three from three, but they've only played three of 24 matches and 
we know they'll be motivated to very much win this next World Cup given the <laughs> the tragedy of what happened, you know, two years ago almost to the day now. But again, you make a really good point. Bangladesh, Pakistan, uh, the West Indies, South Africa, Sri Lanka, Zimbabwe, none of them have really stood up and said, look, we're the next best out of that sort of big four, big three at the moment. So it's going to be fascinating. And, and these teams, you know, that we'll be covering in depth, the Netherlands, Ireland and Afghanistan, have more than a good chance of making that top eight and automatically qualifying. And they know what it's like going to that that World Cup qualifier because it's so tough. And the bearing of all those matches, the pressure rides up twofold, threefold when you get to that stage. Well, yeah, and you mentioned Afghanistan. They, we, we have barely even talked about them. And, you know, look at their run. They've got Pakistan in the UAE, which is sort of home ground for both of them. The Netherlands, which that could be a real deciding factor, that one, if... if you know, if they're both chasing, you know, the last few points to stay above the relegation or, or get into direct qualification, that, that could be a great series. They've got Australia, which, you know, you wouldn't expect them to win that. And then, you know, who who else? Bangladesh, that's very winnable for Afghanistan. India, again, probably not going to win that. Sri Lanka and Zimbabwe, two more of those teams in that sort of bottom five who are fighting it out. And, you know, they've, they've shown they can beat Zimbabwe and they can beat Sri Lanka. So I think Afghanistan are, are looking pretty good at this point, honestly. As a reminder, yeah, we are before match three of Ireland, South Africa, but a lot of this stuff still rings true no matter what happens in that game. So looking forward to that. And in terms of other Super League matches that do have a huge bearing on things, Zimbabwe taking on Bangladesh uh, in the next week or so. So yeah, look out for that. There's plenty of cricket. And and the best part is for, for us and for everyone listening here at the Emerging Pod, all of these one-day matches that are full member matches have bearing for associates and for emerging members as well. So that's great for us and we look forward to, to watching all of this contextual cricket because that's what cricket does in fact need. Some some cricket that has gone on in other parts of the world will start in Europe. Two series that have gone on here, one on the women's side, one on the men's side. Germany taking on France uh, on the women's side and then Belgium taking on Malta in Malta. We'll start with the Germany-France T20i series. A 5-0 victory for Germany. Pretty emphatic, it has to be said. On paper, it was probably looking like it would happen like this. And Aruta Dolabalapur, again, the star of the show, or one of the stars of the show for Germany. Seven wickets across the five matches. Chimed in with 74 runs, was named player of the series. An excellent character in the emerging game, and we'll get into that in, in a sec, Nick. But I think overall... Germany cricket, both on the men's and women's side, in a pretty healthy spot at the moment. There's a lot of participation. The German women's team is certainly going to be probably that next team in the European region to really push the the strong women's associate members in World Cup qualification and other things like that down the track probably a year or so too early to really make a push but this was a it was a good watch once again European Cricket Network putting on this series and the men's series as well as the European Cricket Series in Romania basically all at the same time so they're doing a monumental job at the moment and we thank them for that but yeah Germany once again here too strong. Yeah I mean France they're probably the next rung down in terms of associates they around the sort of Austria level but you know you can only beat who's in front of you and, and the French they haven't played for probably a couple of years now um, so good opportunity for them but they, they just were outclassed you know they, they couldn't get past 100 in, in any of their innings because Germany bowled really well in part thanks to, to Dota Balapur you know seven wickets economy of 2.25 that they couldn't get her away I, I, and as you mentioned the ECN European 
Cricket Network had the highlights packages and and the live streams, and you know that's that's a good initiative. They're getting good numbers as well on on the streams. Yeah. So as we always say, if you show the matches, people will watch it. Um, and yeah, I think Dota Balapur's off spin would be interesting to see how she goes on turf because she she gets good flight and she uses the bounce of the Astro turf really well. And so you know, if she was playing on a pitch that didn't have quite as much bounce, I'd be interested to see how she goes with that. But the French just yeah really struggled. None none of their batters really got going. That's the thing. You know, the Germans they are better. And I'm thinking you know in terms of associate cricket and how Ireland and Afghanistan being really good for so long lifted the standard of everyone else. And and having teams like Germany really start pushing on means that everyone else is going to have to start you know trying to compete with them. And and that'll lift the standard. So looking a bit more broadly, I think this is really good for just for cricket in Europe in general. And as you say, it'll be interesting to see how Germany goes in the um the upcoming qualifiers. Looking on the batting side of things, Christina Goff again, solid at the top. Janet Ronalds also hitting it well. Cindy Bretesch was the best of the French bowlers. She took four wickets and, you know, she tried hard, but she just didn't really have any support. So she couldn't build much pressure, even though she got a few good deliveries in. And yeah, it's it's hard being in a team that's not performing. And, you know, the <laughs> Emmanuel Brulivier, the, the captain, had a horror run. I think she scored about three runs in the whole five games. Um, so when that's happening, it's not setting a good tone for the rest of the side. Germany, you're looking at them, 14 consecutive wins. They're sneaking up on Thailand and Australia, Mm. who, you know, Thailand's the record holder with 17 consecutive wins and Australia's on 16. So depending on where their next matches come, I think Germany are, you know, not a bad shout to break that record. Uh, yeah, brought to our attention this weekend. That's quite significant. Again, looking at and having Germany potentially atop of, of that record, like Thailand are, it's great for the associate women's game. And to have something like that to strive to, and then on the other side, France, this is a great learning curve for, for what they want to try and achieve with their cricket as well. And you can see even through the five-match series that there were improvements made day upon day. So that's really how we're going to get all of these teams built up in the Peter Delapena rising tide floats or boats analogy is that they do compete against one another and they do make sure that yes with the situation that we're in to play against your, your next neighboring associate member in international action whether it's on the men's or women's side it's it's going to be crucial for the next at least for the next year or two outside of qualification and, and other things but one thing you did mention there talking about highlights being cut up for a number of these matches and I think that's the next step with with what we're going to be trying to achieve what the emerging game needs to achieve in in terms of its coverage of the associate game as much as we love cricket as much as you love cricket Nick myself Tim everyone that listens to this podcast yes we want to watch as much of this cricket as possible and the ECN are doing a really good job in Europe as are a number of other clients in other places streaming cricket but it's going to come to a point where we're not going to be able to watch all of this cricket at once there's there's going to have to be yeah we'll need 20 minute half an hour mini matches to kind of be able to to discuss a lot of this but that's the next step and that and that's how we get even more exposure as you said the numbers the metrics on the viewership numbers are, are great and highlights will only help that and I'm sure there's someone out there feverishly cutting up all these packages because I know how hard it is, but that that's the next step. And I think that's probably where cricket's going to grow from a coverage front as well. So yeah, once again, congratulations to Germany looking very strong. Um, and yeah, come the women's qualifiers, we will see them make a really good push. Whether or not that comes into play with their record attempt, it remains to be seen. 
And just one last point on the German skipper Anurata Dodabalapur, as well as being, uh, you know, a good batter, a good bowler, she's a cardiovascular research scientist in Germany. So, as you do, yeah, one of the coolest players in uh, international cricket, I think, um, and potentially a guest to get on the show at some point. Yeah, look, we should probably uh, extend a, a warm welcome, and we've we've had a number of fantastic women's figures in the game, and I know Nick, you've got one lined up next week which we might be able to tease at some point but spoilers uh let's talk about belgium malta this series wasn't short of controversy and we will talk about it with as much detail as we can because still things are not really that clear in terms of what actually happened in Massa over the weekend but we'll try and do our best here so belgium won the t20 series three to two pretty comfortable i want to say malta definitely had their moments stealing one match and then eventually winning a second with penalty runs one of very few matches that i think i've ever seen end up uh, with a result by penalty runs we'll talk about that in a, in a couple of moments but again the european cricket network uh staging this one in sunny malta Nick, and a good result for Belgium, at least by the end of it, winning that series 3-2. Yeah, nice ground, actually, in, in the town of Massa. Um, shout out to Bertus de Jong, who I'm sure had a nice holiday over in Malta uh, watching some cricket while we're still uh, locked down because we, we can't get people vaccinated, apparently. But anyway, we don't need to talk about that. Um, yeah, big wins for both teams on the first day. Wasim Abbas uh, grabbed a hat-trick for Malta to bundle the Belgians out for under 100, and um, you know, Malta chased it down. And then the Belgians took revenge. You know, They demolished Malta in the second game on the first day you know um had a solo tarakel smashed uh, i think 45 off about 20 balls to get them home very quick smart and uh so that kind of um set up the next you know the rest of the series malta struggled a bit in the second day in the third game and then the thriller actually malta had i think five runs to get in the last over and one wicket in hand and th- th- there was all sorts of um gesticulating and a lot of conferences on the sideline with various people involved and match officials and they started playing the over and Belgium got the wicket and started celebrating because they thought they'd won the series and then the umpires kind of converged and and from what we are able to kind of you know the information that we've had come out the word is that they awarded five penalty runs because Sherry Butt the Belgian captain came and confronted one of the umpires between the innings and that's a, a violation of the code of conduct and 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 the five runs were awarded for that. But yeah, it was a very strange end to the game because we, we don't know exactly why... You know the pen- Why didn't the penalty happen at the time of the incident? Why why did it take them till <laughs> to the last over to, to... I don't know. You know, one theory is that they sort of realised in the last over that they needed to award the penalty runs before the match ended because otherwise, um, you know, if, if the match ends under the rules of the game, you can't then go back and change the result so i guess they sort of figured that they had to get it in before the match ended and and then yeah it ended up taking malta to victory even though they'd lost their last wicket so yeah quite a strange scenario i'm not sure if you've had more details come out yet but that's that's what i've heard so i checked in with our honorary uh umpiring expert claire polisak uh, to talk about this, and she said that she had never seen a result determined by penalty runs in her life before, which tells you also just how rare it was. Uh, showed her what had happened with the video stream of, of the match. 
But again, it was very tough to actually work out what happened because nothing was really shown on screen. The only things that I can really add to what you've mentioned there, Nick, is that Shreya Butt was dismissed LBW in the first innings that match, but he showed no dissent towards either of the officials once he was out. He looked disappointed, as we all do, forlornly dismissed LBW. The decision looked to be honest, to the naked eye watching it. It definitely looked like it could have been given out LBW. We don't have a perfect angle on it like the umpire has, but it looked like realistically it was a good decision. Nothing untoward happened at that point from what I could gather. And again, the conference at the start of the last over was very confusing because maybe word had got around as to what had happened, but the penalty runs were only applied after the match had taken place because Belgium had celebrated taking the last wicket thinking that they'd actually won the match. Um, When in actual fact, you know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes later, they found that they didn't win the match. So maybe it was someone getting on the phone to a a match referee or or an official from the ICC in regards to a ruling on this and then finding that Sharia Butt was guilty of a level four offense of threatening the umpire, which does include a five penalty run add-on to to the score there. So look, it's it's a fascinating one. It it took us by... It took... I was captivated by it. Um, It was drama at least. And, And I think... The consolation for Belgium in all of it, despite losing that match, they did go on to win the series in, in match five. But yes, it's it's one that's that's uh, interesting. Another hat-trick before I do forget, Nick. Shiraz Sheikh taking a hat-trick in, in match three as well. So kind of a, a couple of bowling records in all of that. Uh, congratulations to to Belgium and, and commiserations to, to Malta. But again, international cricket did steal some of the headlines with, with some of the stuff that might have happened on the field. But a 3-2 series win to me suggests that, you know, even with that one that, that went the other way, still a lot of competition on show. And, and again, a good hit out for both of these teams. Yeah, and, and Belgium really, um, it, it was good to see the way they bounced back in the last game. You know, after all the drama, they posted, I think, 172 and Malta got off to a good start, actually, in the chase, but the Belgian bowlers came back and, and choked that off. So, uh, you know, it was good that they came out and played really positively. Had a sort Tarakel again hit, I think, 70-odd. Sabah Zakil, the all-rounder, with the uh, with the old Tim Cutlers, the left-arm orthos. And uh, so he took six wickets, but also smashed... 60-odd uh, off about 30 balls in that 172. So, you know, looking at looking at Belgium, they have a few good players that they've found. Uh, Malta, probably a bit disappointed, honestly. They had a few opportunities to get going, especially in that last game. You know, they were, I think, one for 80-odd after 10 overs with Heinrich Gericke going, going quite well, but then he got dismissed in the 50s and then the rest of the team just sort of crumbled around and, and they had a few of those where one person was going well but then you know the rest of them just sort of crumbled and so they need to have a bit more a bit more discipline and, and, and a few more partnerships and I think Malta you know they're sort of 15 20 places behind Belgium in the rankings but they didn't look that much worse so yeah with a bit of improvement I, I think they'll be competing up around that that level too I know we did dabble in some off-field uh, conduct I suppose in that in that series and, and everything that went on there but to move a little bit further in the administrative ranks uh, there's a very important time coming up for associate members in the next fortnight or so with the next chief executive committee elections to be held uh, as a part of the ICC. And we had Mark Stafford on last week to talk about his role in that and, and, and his aspirations for, for what that can do to bring positive change to associate cricket and emerging cricket as a whole. But there is definitely a couple of things going on in regards to all of the game's associate members trying to work together or you know at least attempting to work together uh, to try and find a, a resolution in terms of the funding that they do receive from now on. It, 
in that game. And, and we've talked about it a lot, the funding in, in regards to full members versus all of the associate members, all 92 of them at this point. And we could well see a couple more or a few more later on um, in terms of gaining associate membership. So that number's only going to get bigger. But there seems to be a little bit of a disconnect at the moment, Nick, between the high-performing 10 associate member teams uh, to quickly rattle them off, USA, Scotland, the Netherlands, Oman, UAE, PNG, Nepal, Namibia, Canada, Hong Kong. None of those nations are actually represented by anyone on that chief executives committee. So looking at, at what they are going to do moving forward in building all of the associate game, this next week or so in terms of these elections, Nick, they carry a lot of significance in, in how a lot of the funding might be divided up into all of those members and how everything else is run at that level of the game. It's it's going to be a very intriguing time. Yeah, this is coming from an article by a friend of the pod, Tristan Lavalette, writing for Forbes, and, and he was talking about some rumblings within the CEC uh, elections and, and some of the politicking around that. It seems to be that um, those 10 associate members are forming a bit of a, I don't know if you could call it a cabal, but uh, you know, or, or a big 10 maybe. Um, but they're, they're essentially... They feel that because they're so important to the development of, of cricket in terms of you know, having those high-performing associates knocking on the door and, and you know, I guess, reminding everybody about the, you know, the potential of associates, they feel that they should be better represented um, on the board and, and potentially with money. And I guess that these kinds of maneuverings, they seem to be a bit of a reaction against what has been happening in the last couple of years, which is the lower-ranked associates kind of ganging up and, and they, they pushed out Betty Timmer because essentially they the accusation, I guess, was that she was getting too much money for the top teams and especially the Netherlands and, you know, less money was going to the lower ranked teams. So the kind of dynamic here is basically that the lower ranked teams are trying to get more money, which because there's a limited pot for associates, it has to come out of somewhere and ultimately in the last couple of years, the, the push has been to try and get it out of the top performing associates, which... You know, th- th- this is all sort of broad brushes, um, a very simplistic kind of description, but that's that's the general direction of travel. I think, you know, there's a lot going on and, and you know, intuitively, I really dislike cabals and, you know, power grabs and all of that. But I, I guess the argument on one side is that you need to have these high-performing associates and you need to be funding them as- appropriately so that they are competitive against, you know, against full members who, who get multiple times their funding every year. And, and, I mean, even within the four members, you know, you see, I think uh, Zimbabwe gets about twice as much as uh, Ireland and Afghanistan. And, of course, India gets a lot more than that. And, you know, there's all of that sort of uh, discussion. But the problem with the associates situation is, realistically, it, it, it's it's kind of a forced artificial dilemma because the, the, the issue is that they're squabbling over a small pie, uh, which has kind of it's it's an artificial scarcity mm. because when you have a small amount of money, where do you spend that limited amount? You know th- those limited resources. Is it in tournaments to reward the high performers? Is it with more payments to the lower ranked team so that they can get better? Bertus de Jong in one of his columns described this kind of trend as uh, potentially leading leading to democratized mediocrity, where you know the lower ranked teams get a bit better and the top ranked teams get a bit worse. And so I don't know if that's necessarily good for cricket. It's good for a lot of cricket teams, um, but you know if you look at the ICC revenue and where it goes, this is all pretty you know back of the napkin maths. But overall, for the eight year cycle that we're heading to the end of, was two and a half billion dollars. 
So that's a roughly $312 million a year going to the ICC. More than half of that is just going directly into the pockets of full members. So $175 million a year is just handed straight back to full members. The BCCI gets $32 million a year, which is the entire scorecard and event grants budget. So, you know, when one full member is getting that much money, which is then supposed to fund pretty much the entire associates program, you know, you think, well, is it really a shortage or is it just a problem of distribution? Most of the other full members are getting around 14 million. Zimbabwe gets roughly 10 million and Afghanistan and Ireland get sort of six and a bit million. So, there's some fantasy scenarios that I've I've looked at, which, you know, if you want to make things a bit more equal, you could potentially... Instead of spending $175 million a year just on full members, spend $175 million a year on disbursements to associate members, but the full members just get $10 million each. So everyone's at Zimbabwe's level. And then you can have associates getting $600,000 a year for each of them. That would be transformative. You know, if if all of these associates, because so many of them have to get by on just an absolute pittance, you know, less than $100,000 a year. If you can just give them, you know, even $600,000 or $500,000 a year, that would make a huge difference to so many of these associates. Or, you know, going the other way, you could cut down on direct disbursements. Let's say $130 million, everybody gets $7 million each, so around Afghanistan's level. Then you have $182 million, so an extra $43 million for events or developments. Or, you know, um, just don't give the big three anything because they don't need it. There you go. There's an extra $40 million boost to development budget. Yeah, there's a lot of things you can do. Obviously, uh, most of these probably won't happen because we go back to the structural problems, which is that for any reform to happen, you need the full members in the board to vote for it. So you're kind of asking the turkeys to vote for Christmas in the sense that (laughs) they will probably not vote to reduce their own funding. And that's ultimately the problem. So you look at the conflict here with the associates kind of squabbling amongst themselves. Well, the only reason they are squabbling amongst themselves is because the the artificial scarcity being forced on them by the full members. You've, you've hit the nail on the head there, especially with that, that last point. You know, Had the overall funding for all of them been larger, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation we wouldn't be needing this conversation it's very very difficult you know you look at the way that the the very top the very high end high end nations make their money yes they get a huge slice of ICC funding that's abundantly clear we we know all about that but they are more than self-sustainable all three of the big three and many of the other full members it's very hard for anyone to convince them to kind of go cold turkey on icc funding and not get any at all but it's going to come to a point at some stage where okay the game will be making exponentially more money you would think theoretically in the game the longer it goes on what has to happen is that there needs to be a shift in the balance in how that money is given out to all their members down the track so it needs to be tiered but it needs to be kind of back-ended in such a way where eventually you get to a point where the funding percentage for huge members of of the international group council they will eventually gain less and less funding from all of it but it needs to be a very gradual thing and it's not going to just happen in one swift action of a gavel it needs to happen over time and it needs to be done in such a way where everyone can still feasibly like what's about to happen and encouraging a lot of the really high-end full members to make sure that they are more than self-sustainable because we've seen Cricket Australia throw all their money into shares of the sponsors that they had (laughs) and, you know, things go up the proverbial creek without a paddle for them. So there needs to be a smarter way that this needs to be done and 
it's hard for me to say that without you know me having a, a really good comeback and a really good alternative to that because I, I don't really want to be the person that just complains about it but offers no alternative. But yeah, it's going to be a slow process whether we like it or not. I think for it to be anywhere near realistic, you know, it's not going to happen overnight um, and, and it's... And it certainly won't, you know, with with the voting the way it is at the moment. And then once you do become a full member as an associate, like Afghanistan and Ireland have done, they're really stuck between a rock and a hard place when they do do this voting because, yes, they've just come from associate members, but, you know, they've got their best interests at heart, which is completely understandable. They're trying to grow their own game as well. You know, it's not, it's not fantasy land here. So they're in a really tough spot too where, you know, they look back and they're like, yeah, we, we'd love to help Scotland out. We'd love to help the Netherlands out. We'd love to help these teams out. We'd love to help Vanuatu out. We'd love to help... Uganda, etc. But, you know, these are two teams trying to find their feet in, in the full member world as well. So it's fascinating, the politics of the ICC, um, and it remains to be seen what happens. But yeah, uh, we just sit here with popcorn, you know, ready to eat, ready to find out what's about to happen because we really can't do anything about any of this sort of stuff. No, I, I agree that, as you say, it'll probably, if there is change in what I view as the right direction, it'll it'll probably be gradual rather than just, uh, you know, up and saying, well, India, you're not getting any more money because, as we know, that's, <laughs> that is not remotely realistic. But I, I'm just sort of presenting these things as a, a an exercise to show that it, it's not, the, the problem is not in terms of associate funding that there's no money. The problem is that the money is distributed in a way that, that makes it very difficult to um, continue growing the game. And let's just say, you know, all, all the four members got $15 million and India just got $15 million. You know, even even something like that, where they're all getting the same, that won't happen because we, we know the internal politics of the BCCI are geared towards proving that you're the tough guy and you're able to go to the ICC and get more money. And, and that's kind of the way that the BCCI operates. And yes, you know, there's arguments around the Indian cricket team uh, being in tournaments is, is a huge part of why the ICC can sell these tournaments for so much money and all, all of those arguments I get. But ultimately, the Indian Cricket Board doesn't need that extra $32 million a year when they're getting their own TV revenue. So that's kind of the issue for me. No, that, that, that's a fair point. And we know that members of the ICC Global Development Team are working feverishly to try and to, to build something closer to, to parity and all of this. But again, you, if one wants to compare this to, to football's governing body, FIFA, you know, everyone gets the same amount of money in, in, a, in a distribution every year. It doesn't matter if you're Brazil and it doesn't matter if you're the Solomon Islands. Everyone gets the same slice. So they are w- worked in, in, in very different ways. And I think down the line, it needs to work something similar to that model. But yeah, again, it's not going to happen overnight. Some other news off the field to the United States where there's been some progress made in Major League Cricket and everything going on there with uh, USA Cricket. Major League Cricket has announced Toyota as their principal sponsor of the competition moving forward. It will also be presented by Sling TV. Matches are set to begin on July 31st um, and more than $4 million at this stage has been invested into the league and it's 27 team owners into staging the tournament. So... I think, you know, it would have to be the most sort of expensive and the most extensive competition to take place in, in USA cricket, which I think is is something that, well, it's, it's vital for, for USA cricket that something like this is on the horizon and it's coming up very soon. We look forward to a lot of it playing out. But one thing that I do want to sort of ask you, Nick, as a discussion point is we do sort of wrap up today. We've seen some other leagues in that part of the world try to establish themselves. Uh, they're not sanctioned by USA Cricket nor the ICC. So 
you know, we doubt we'll see them gain a lot of attention. But the theory that, that I'm kind of working with at the moment and talking to Nate Hayes about this, and I'm sure a lot of other people in the US would agree, as you would too, if the game will grow in the USA, it will take people to buy in to what the board does in terms of how they want to push their cricket and people really all kind of conglomerating and becoming one with the board and supporting USA cricket in regards to progress like this because outside of that it just looks like you know there are a lot of different people around trying to be the hero trying to do the same job but ultimately don't unite they don't link up it's not a many hands make light work approach to it it's I want to be Superman in all of this and I want to save USA cricket. It seems like the board have a well-established plan as to how they want to build cricket in the USA. They've got personnel there, they've got a structure, they've got a league structure and they've got players now. So how important is it for everyone else to buy into USA cricket's dream to make American cricket the great American dream? Well, yeah, we've talked about this a lot on the show, just that the fact that the US has a lot of cricket enthusiasts uh, who live in the country and a lot of uh, cricket players who live in the country, but not that many of them are interested in American cricket. And and this is, I guess, what the minor league and major league cricket kind of structure is trying to, you know, they're trying to bridge that gap. But it, it will, I guess will, it remains to be seen whether they can kind of break into that sphere of getting people enthusiastic about local American cricket. And you mentioned Nate Hayes. Um, you know, he's doing a lot of good work with, you know, Morrisville and uh, that kind of region in, in North Carolina where they do have good buy-in and, and they do support the US national team. So, I guess that's kind of a bit of a model, perhaps, for getting people enthusiastic about the team and, and viewing it as their team rather than just kind of this distant thing that, whatever, we'll just play our leagues on Saturday and they don't really care about, you know, whatever the USA is doing in their games against Oman or Nepal or whoever else. So, as you say, that's the key is just bringing everyone together. The, the tour out of sponsorship, that's another interesting point. You know, I, I remember... Peter Delapena talking about how whenever he watches cricket in America, the, the sponsors are always Indian money remittance programs or you know, Indian products that they're trying to sell to Indian people in America. Uh, so the fact that they've got Toyota on board indicates that they're perhaps trying to sell to people who aren't just you know Indians sending money back home and, and getting nostalgic about, uh, about India, but rather they're trying to sell into that American market. So that's promising. I think that's just about all the time that we have, Nick, for this week. A little bit different without Tim and, and without a guest, but yeah, a lot of action going on in the world of associate cricket. Uh, I think you'll be running the ship the next couple of weeks. I'll be out of action with the Olympics going on. So looking forward to listening to, to everything as, as a fan of, of the pod. But for everyone else, we'll be back next week. Uh, and to keep up with news from Cricket's New World, make sure to follow Emerging Cricket wherever you uh, follow us, I suppose, on Twitter, Facebook, etc. Uh, make sure to give us a five-star rating if you are listening to the podcast in whichever of the 80-plus countries you are listening to us in. And I suppose from for now, uh, from myself, Daniel Beswick, and Nick Skinner here at the Emerging Cricket Podcast, enjoy the rest of your week wherever you are around the Emerging Cricket world.